Hello everyone, Lee Arnold welcoming you to another edition of Country Music Conversations. Every so often, I like to turn the time machine back to the golden era of country music and visit with pioneers like today's guest, the late Billy Walker. But before we start this conversation, here are a few words from our sponsor. Country Music Conversations with Lee Arnold's podcast is made possible by our sponsor, MarketSmith, Inc., the digital media agency that's been growing brands like Toomey, Shark Ninja, New Jersey Lottery, PSE&G, Blue Mercury Cosmetics, and Dick Sporting Goods. You know what makes this agency so good at what they do? Because simply being a marketing agency is no longer enough. Solution-based, problem-solving, and ever-evolving, they create enduring value for DTC and B2B brands by opening up and growing marketing channels. Their patented AI offerings, informed by human intelligence, allow them to act with agility and intellect. I was speaking with the CEO not too long ago, and she was saying they take on clients who know who they are, who want to grow, and clients that know what they want. These big brands choose MarketSmith because they want to merge with a partner who'll make them exceptional and an agency that will grow their revenue. Digital marketing is not easy, but MarketSmith Inc. knows when to make the media dollars work hard for their clients. You have a brand you want to grow? Well, contact MarketSmith.com and tell them Lee Arnold sent you. Billy was not just a country singer, but one of the best crooners, which included Jim Reeves, Eddie Arnold, George Morgan, and the late Marty Robbins. Like so many of our stars, Billy was a true Texan, born and raised in the Lone Star State. His nickname was the Tall Texan, and while still in high school, he won a talent contest that earned him a spot on a radio station in Clovis, New Mexico. That led to another big break, when he joined the Big D Jamboree in Dallas, where he performed weekly. He originally recorded for Capitol Records, and then he got a contract from Columbia Records. The two most important platforms that gave Billy national exposure as a performer in the 50s was the Ozark Jubilee, which aired on ABC TV every Saturday from Springfield, Missouri. And then he became a member of the Grand Ole Opry on January 1, 1960, and stayed an active member up until the time of his untimely passing in 2006. Billy Walker was not only a major star here in the U.S., but earned a reputation as an international country star, appearing all throughout Europe and the Far East. At one point in his career, Billy had his own TV syndicated show. And although he enjoyed a very successful recording career, he had only one number one hit, which was Charlie Shoes. However, he gave us some lasting memories with top ten hits like A Million and One, Matamoros, and Cross the Brazos at Waco. And of course, who could forget Funny How Time Slips Away? On May 21, 2006, Billy Walker died when the van he was driving back to Nashville after a performance in Alabama, veered off Interstate 85 in Fort Deposit, Alabama, and overturned. 
His wife Betty also died, along with three of his musicians. The only survivor was his grandson, who ended up with some serious injuries. I always enjoyed being in this company. Billy had a warm, natural personality and was never at a loss for words. In this conversation, he discussed his early career, when Willie Nelson lived with him for three months, and much, much more. Now, here is Billy Walker. We were happy to welcome today our old friend Billy Walker. Hi, Billy. Hello, Lee. It's nice to see you. Star of the Grand Old Opry. And a, a whole lot of road shows throughout the world. Yeah, and you, you are a familiar name in Europe. There's no question about that, whether it's Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, England, Ireland. You've been to them all. We have enjoyed a lot of tours to the European continent, and we're looking forward to a lot more. What is it about a European audience, Billy, that's so special or different than the United States? They love country music, and they show their appreciation by their applause and by buying your product and being friendly. They want to be friendly because they, they love your music and they want to show you that they do appreciate you. You started out at a very young age, like a lot of great country music singers way back in your time and your contemporaries. I guess the first time you ever became a, a performer was at the tender age of 15 in Clovis, New Mexico with your own radio show. Yeah, I won a little old amateur contest that paid me $3 and a chocolate cake. And I don't know why the chocolate cake, but I still remember that. And uh, the guy that was putting on the uh, show was uh, with a radio station there. And he said, the kid, would you like to sing on our radio station? And I said, yeah, I sure would. So he gave me a 15-minute radio program at one o'clock every Saturday afternoon, and that's how I got in show business. Your radio career continued with a big D jamboree later on, where you were known as the masked singer. How did what? Why did did you were you actually masked? Yeah, they called me the traveling Texan, the masked singer of folk songs. And the story behind that was I was supposed to be a rich kid that his mother and father didn't want him singing that old dirty country music, and uh, it worked, and it got me a. Uh, record contract with Capitol Records back then. Who gave you the name Tall Texan? Well, it kind of evolved from the traveling Texan to the Tall Texan because they couldn't, they knew it was a, a, a TT and they didn't remember exactly what it was. So I stood a traveling Texan, it became the Tall Texan. You went on to do some of the greatest radio shows for country music at the time, namely the Louisiana Hayride and the Ozark Mountain Jubilee after that. Yeah, the uh, the Louisiana Hayride had uh, Slim Whitman, Webb Pierce, uh, and a whole host of people down there, and uh, I really enjoyed that. That was uh, it, it was a step up from the Big D Jamboree, and we had uh, 250,000 watt uh radio stations uh, pumping it here in the States, and it uh, was uh, was really a great show to work. I guess everyone has a big turning point in their career, and what made the difference in yours was becoming a member of the Grand Ole Opry way back in 1960. We're going on 30 years now. You're a 30-year veteran. Yeah, I just celebrated a 30th anniversary here, and uh, everybody thinks that, uh, you know, you should be old as Methuselah, but remember, I started out pretty young in this business. But uh, I'd already had uh, uh, like three or four top ten records in my career, but I had a band, and, and in 1959, we had worked 260 dates, and I'd wound up $10,000 in debt, and I said, this has got to change. I can't stand this. And so a friend of mine by the name of uh, Randy Hughes, who was my manager and also Patsy Klein's manager, in fact, Patsy Klein and I came here within about two months of each other, 
And uh, he got me a, a, an appearance on the network portion of the Grand Ole Opry in November of 59. And Ott Devine, that was the manager then, said, uh, would you like to come and sing on the Grand Ole Opry? And I jumped at the chance and I said, you bet I would. That's wonderful. Really changed your life that, that, that moment, didn't it? You don't realize the turning points in one's career. Well, you can only look back and see of the right decisions you've made. And you look back and see some of the wrong decisions that you made. But that was one of the right decisions in my life. You also had your own country TV series called Country Carnival at one time, didn't you? Yeah. In fact, Willie Nelson just bought that for that cowboy network that they're going to put in in uh, 1991. And uh, he bought all that whole series of television shows. And we were talking the other day and I, I was trying to deal for him myself. But uh, I wanted them for my my rogues gallery, my museum. But uh, he beat me to it, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those old shows myself because we got Merle Haggard and Charlie Pride and Hank Snow and Hank Thompson and Webb Pierce and Lefty Frizzell and just a whole lot of my friends that uh, we worked road shows back uh, early in my career, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those things myself. Oh, that should be. Boy, that's really history of country music, some of the names you just mentioned. Yeah, that's to me, that's kind of the golden era of this business. And folks in Europe uh, still remember those names more than any others at this particular time. You also appeared in a couple of movies, didn't you? Yeah, we did a, a singing thing uh, here right here in Nashville called Second Fiddle to a Steel Guitar. Didn't Jeannie Shepard uh, record a song like that? Well, yeah. In fact, she recorded that song for this movie. And uh, it starred the Bowery Boys, and we all got a little dialogue, and we sang a couple of songs in that thing. And then I did a, uh, I did one with, uh, with Burt Reynolds also. Uh, in fact, I've done four movies. I, I wound up on the cutting room floor in two. <laughs> Me and Hank Williams Jr. did uh, uh, one together back in the early 70s with Robert Blake, and it wound up on the cutting room floor. My part of the Burt Reynolds movie, uh, which was very successful, wound up on the cutting room floor. And I decided my movie career was had had it. You can be classified, I guess, among others in country music as not just a country singer, but a country crooner, a balladeer. There's a difference. Well, yeah, I suppose that's right. We try to incorporate, you know, I've always been a ballad singer where it's been an up-tempo song like Charlie Shoes uh, or uh, a slow ballad like Funny How Time Slips Away. Uh, that's, I grew up singing to the cattle out in West Texas, and that's what I like best, and that's how I learned to sing, really. Of the new crop of country singers out there, are there any particular favorites that you have that strike you as some stars of tomorrow? Well, I think that Garth Brooks will eventually become a, a big name in this business. Uh, he's a, a kind of a ballad singer like myself. Uh, uh, there are so many people on the rise now. Uh, it it seems like that uh, the traditional vein has always sold the most records, but got the less play on, on radio. Now it's kind of reversing itself, and it has it is becoming uh, uh knowledgeable now to be a, a traditionalist type singer and fashionable too huh? fashionable yeah that's the word i was really looking for billy who are some of your early heroes who you kind of emulated early on in your career well i uh, i was a gene autry fan uh because the only time i really got to see people that it, uh, it affected my life was gene autry he affected my life he's the reason i really got in the singing business because at at uh, 13 years old 
my dad gave me some money to on my birthday to go to, to a, a movie. And I said, I have got to do what that guy on the silver screen is doing. And he's playing and singing the guitar. So uh, by the time that I, uh, that Christmas, I picked turkeys for two weeks to get me an old cheap guitar. And I, I set out on the, uh, by the windmill and taught myself how to play out of a 25 cent instruction book. And uh, I learned to play that way. That's incredible. Those stories, that wouldn't happen anymore, I don't think. Well, see, we didn't have records uh, to learn by then. And we didn't have all these newfangled gimmicks that uh, the kids, and I'm not knocking that. We just had to learn the old-fashioned that way, and that was to teach you how to play. And I remember Bob Wills come to, uh, over close to where I was living, and he was playing at a roller rink that time. And uh, I that little old cafe right next door to it, and I was like maybe uh, 14 years old at the time. And, uh, I got the guy that was the guitar player. He was in having a cup of coffee and I took my old guitar and I said, show me you know, how to make these cards and what songs they go in. And so he took his time and he showed me a few cards and what songs they went in. And I told him years later how much influence he had on me. And he was just smiling <laughs> from ear to ear. That's a great story. 1954 was the beginning of your formal record career with a song called thank you for calling. Well, Actually, was, was there one before that? In 1952, I had the original. I didn't, it, it wasn't so much as a big chart record. It did make it to the bubbling under the top 10, and that's all we had back then. Right. But you see, it hit in, in the Southwest first, and it moved to California, and then it would move to the Northeast. It was called Anything Your Heart Desires. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the first, first. Uh, first record that I had that, that, uh, that sold a, a, a uh, a lot of records, we sold around 200,000 sales of that. Uh, and uh, then came Thank You for Calling, which got to be in the top 10, and then other records after that. We go in the chronological order, I guess 1961 was uh, an important year for you because you were the first person, to my knowledge, to record Willie Nelson's classic, Funny How Time Slips Away, and thousands have done it since then. Yeah, you see, the charts are very... Uh, uh, they don't relate really what really happened to my record because my records did not start off in the country music field. It started off in the pop field of the pop charts. I began, and then I had a Columbia had seven pop records in the charts and they quit pressing my record. And uh, then RCA covered it with a with a, a, what sounded like a black singer. And then Columbia Records decided they were going to make my record a hit. So they did start promoting in the country music field. But we sold hundreds of thousands of records before it, any chart action started on it. Amazing. Remember when you first heard Funny How Time Slips Away? Did Willie play it for you? Uh, yeah. In fact, he lived with me. Really? That's he, right. He did. He lived with you in Asheville. Yeah, he lived with me three months, and he wrote that song just as he moved out of my house. And he, I had done a demo on Crazy. I was trying to get him a job of songwriting, and I took him to Star Day, right. and I had learned Crazy, and I said, here's the kind of songs this guy writes, and I made a demo on Crazy. And the guy said, that's a piece of junk. It'll never sell. <laughs> And so he wrote Funny How Time Slips Away right after that. And so I had a Funny How Time Slips Away and Charlie Shoes on the same record session. And I had, uh, 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 when uh, Funny How Time Slips Away began to hit a guy up in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I was a big pop. I, I worked 
pop shows with Bobby Rydell and Chuck wow. Berry and Billy Walker. And here I was from West Texas, a, a, a country music. Man, I didn't know what these guys were doing. I just got out and sang my song, though, and they loved it, man, because they... And so the guy says, what are you going to sing next, uh, record next, and I uh, come out with? And I said, he had a ukulele mm-hmm. over in the corner. This was after the show. And I tuned this ukulele up, and I whistled Charlie's shoes and played the ukulele. And he said, if you'll cut that song exactly like that, I'll make it a smash. So I came back to Nashville. Now, I had already had uh, a country version cut on Charlie's shoes, or a steel guitar and a, a, a vocal background. I got, I come back and made them say I, I was hitting. So they'd let me do what I wanted to. And I, I whistled and uh, played ukulele on Charlie's shoes and it become a million seller for me. Yeah. Number one song. Yeah. yeah. Still do it at the opera. Oh yeah. You know, those things that they'll grow old with you. Once you've had a song to get that kind of identification, they'll grow old with you. Cross the, uh, Brazos at Waco was a, actually it was my number one song internationally because we not only sold a ton of records uh, in this country, we sold a ton of records. I never did make number one in this country on, on billboard charts. Now I made it on cash box and record world and music reporter and uh, all the rest of them. But I didn't have the influence that particular time with, uh, with billboard. We stayed number two for a, a few weeks, but worldwide it is, has been my best record seller. You also have had luck with some pop material, too. I remember Ramona was a big hit for Paul Whiteman and Gene Austin, and you turned into a big hit, too. Well, you see, Ramona goes way back to 19 and 21, and there's, it's like uh, every song has will rebuild its own following from one generation to the next mm-hmm. if presented in a right kind of way. And we just, we just enhanced on somebody else's arrangement. Right. Same thing with Smoky Places by the, the the Corsairs did. Yeah, well, you see, I had to I I I, I wrote a bridge for that song. Uh-huh. I, I took his talking part and then added something to it and put a melody to it. And uh, Phil Spector, that's got the credit for writing that song, who didn't write the <laughs> who didn't write the song, uh, because he sent me some other stuff that he he tried to write, and I said this guy couldn't have written that song. But uh, anyway. Uh, it, it turned out to be a, a nice record for me. Yeah. Also, another great Billy Walker performance is When a Man Loves a Woman. Talk about the ballad side of you. Yeah, that uh, that was a song that a couple of, of Nashville songwriters written uh, from Florida, uh, Bill and uh, Gary Stewart and Bill Eldridge. Yeah. And uh, that's another song that it was about four minutes long when I got it. And uh, we got together one day and I said, hey, guys, this is much too long. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut this and this and this and this. And we went in real quick and cut the record and it started becoming a big hit. And so I recorded three of their songs. She goes walking through my mind and and, uh, another song uh, that uh, they had on Hit Parade. And I can't think of it for a moment, uh, but they were good songwriters. How about a great, great favorite call when a man loves a woman? Well, uh, that one was the one we were just talking about. Oh, I, that we just talked about that. Yeah, uh, like She Goes Walking Through My Mind, which was the next hit. And then we followed that with a song called Sing Me a Love Song to Baby, which right. got to be number one in several of the other charts. But I, I didn't have the clout with the billboard at the time. But She Goes Walking Through My Mind, uh, Sing Me a Love Song to Baby. Uh, we were on our way to play a date in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
and I got to writing a song in the it was traveling in a station wagon back then called uh, I'm counting my tear I'm counting my teardrops to Tulsa yeah. and uh so uh I couldn't quite fit and I come back and a guy named uh Rayburn Anthony was working for me in front of my show back then and about two weeks later he brought me this song called Sing Me a Love Song to Baby and I said, Rayburn, you wouldn't lift my melody, would you? <laughs> so we uh we uh got in the studio and uh I worked up about an hour and a half on an arrangement with this thing and it never would come off. And finally we spent two hours on that song and I said, I give up. I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You singers, you sing the intro. Steel guitar, you come in and play the same thing they're singing. And then we'll hit the rhythm pattern. And we're going to sing this song together. And it wound up to be number one. And, and I said, how did I do that? <laughs> Another little bit of genius, right? <laughs> yeah. Country creativity at its best. Well, when all else fails, go back to the melody. There you go, Billy. I guess that's the lesson there. 1975 was a big year for your uh, when you were on RCA you had a big song called Word Games which I guess is still popular in your shows is it not Yeah we always open our show with it because it's a rhythm uh tune and it's it's good to open shows with and uh oh I had left uh, MGM by that time because they had had a lot of shakeups in their uh company and uh Ray Pennington and I had worked together over at Monument some, some and he said, Billy, would you like to do some things on RCA? And I said, Why sure I I would. So we got this song. Uh the old boy that produced my television shows, Bill Graham, had brought a song called Word Games. Mm-hmm. And uh uh Ray was I learned I learned this song and we were singing it out on tour. And by the time I got home, uh Ray said, man, I don't really know if that ought to be our first record or not. And I says, trust me, Ray, it's a hit. <laughs> so we put it out on RCA, and it just, it, it, it looked like for the first three or four weeks, it just kind of sat there. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of exploded. And uh, it stayed on, uh, it was one of those records that you really like because it got the kind of chart action to keep moving up, but yet it got, gave the record time to get out there and sell. And so we sold a lot of lot of records on that. Are you happy with the changes of country music that you've seen, Billy? Well, I'm really very happy. Uh, along about 1978, we began to move into, quote, the rock era of what we called country music, the rock and pop era. In fact, you, couldn't, you could listen to a radio station. You couldn't tell what they were. Uh, within the last a couple of three years they have moved back to some semblance of uh, traditional values because you see i think that country music has an art form the same as ballet the same as jazz the same as classical and so why should country music go be polluted to where it has no identification and i got very outspoken about this and a lot of people kind of put me down because they said well you just don't want to see change no it's not that I didn't want to see the music lose its identity, and uh, but we have come back in the last uh, uh, three or four years to to a good semblance of uh, what we considered uh, traditional values. If you had to take a couple of records on a desert island with you, what albums would they be? One or two or three, or all your favorites? Well, I suppose I'm happiest with two albums. One, the Cross the Brazos at album. Uh, and then the second one, a, a million and one album uh, that we did in 1966, because it's got a real, they're just 
plaintive uh, uh, country songs, and they didn't clutter up uh, your voice with a whole bunch of arrangements. You know, uh, most of the arrangers nowadays, they want to mix your voice so far down in the track that they, you can't tell who's singing the song. And to me, a singer should have, uh, if he's going to be a singer with some kind of identification, you need to hear his voice. And so they didn't clutter up the arrangements with a lot of things that uh, I suppose I enjoyed my vocal style on that more than anything. Right. It was a real true Billy Walker performance, one you were proud of. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, Billy, I, I want to Thank you again for taking time out in your busy schedule, going over the Opry this afternoon here in Nashville. And also, I guess you'll be singing tonight, too. Yeah, we're on the, tonight and uh, forward to uh, going back to Europe. We're looking forward to some many more appearances here in the States. And it's always a pleasure to see good traditional country music people spinning good traditional records. Billy, I appreciate you dropping by. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So there you have it. A glimpse of one of the best there ever was, Billy Walker. On next week's Country Music Conversations, we'll visit with Randy Travis. And until then, Lee Arnold reminding you to stay safe and keep it country. <laughs>